Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. Today on Lung Cancer Considered, we will discuss lung cancer screening. Lung cancer remains the leading cause of cancer death in the U.S. and the world, and this is in part due to the late stage of diagnosis. Now, lung cancer symptoms can be very subtle, and early stage lung cancer is often asymptomatic. As a result, lung cancer is typically diagnosed at a very late stage. Lung cancer screening with low-dose CT scans allows for earlier detection of lung cancer, And in randomized trials, this has been shown to significantly decrease lung cancer mortality. And yet, low-dose CT screening remains underutilized. There is some debate regarding best practice. And so in this episode, we're going to talk about lung cancer screening and address some of these ongoing debates. I'm joined by two experts on the topic. Our first guest is Dr. Hilary Robbins, an epidemiologist with the International Agency for Research on Cancer. That's the Cancer Research Agency of the WHO. Dr. Robbins received her doctorate at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and is now based in France with the IARC. She specializes in translational epidemiology and is a recognized expert on cancer screening. Hillary, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. We're also joined by Dr. Brendan Stiles, a thoracic surgeon and a clinical and translational researcher. Dr. Stiles is the Chief of Thoracic Surgery and Surgical Oncology at the Montefiore Einstein Cancer Center in New York the Vice Chair of the Lung Cancer Research Foundation, Board of Directors, and their Scientific Advisory Board, and a member of the LungRAD Steering Committee for Lung Cancer Screening with the American College of Radiology. Brendan is also the Chair of the ISLC Communications Committee. Brendan, thank you for being here. Hi, Steve. It's really great to be here, and I'm pleased to be here with Hillary, too. Let's start with some of the basics. Hillary, in broad terms, can you explain the purpose of cancer screening and the things that make a good screening test? So if we try to summarize it broadly, the purpose of cancer screening is to reduce cancer mortality by detecting cancer at earlier stages when we can treat it more easily. Often this has additional benefits related to reducing morbidity from treatment, for example. But for the most part, we're quite focused on the idea of reducing mortality from the cancer in question. And for that reason, the gold standard of evidence for a cancer screening test is that it reduces the rate of cancer-specific mortality in the setting of a randomized controlled trial. In terms of characteristics of a good screening test, it's really quite a complicated question, but I'll highlight five key things. The first is that the test should be non-invasive or as minimally invasive as possible and should pose low risks and harms for the people undergoing screening. And this is because the vast majority of these people don't have cancer. So it's important to not actually cause them harm by way of the screening test. The second quality is that the test should be acceptable to the population in question that's being screened. And this can be a question of cultural considerations, et cetera. The third thing is that the test should have high specificity. And that means that it correctly classifies people without cancer is having a negative result. And high specificity is very important because a small reduction in specificity can lead to a very large number of false positive tests. The fourth thing is that the test should have at least moderate sensitivity for finding cancers, classifying people with cancer as being positive, and preferably high sensitivity so we can find many cases. And finally, the test should provide enough lead time to identify the cancer at earlier stages compared with when we would have diagnosed it in a clinical setting. 
I think screening is an established and important part of health maintenance, of cancer care. We're familiar over the years with mammogram for breast cancer, colonoscopy for colon cancer. Brendan, why is screening particularly important for lung cancer? Well, it really is critical for lung cancer, Stephen, and Hillary did a good job laying out the rationale for screening. But all you have to do is look at the charts that are released every year by the American Cancer Society. They were just sent out this week. We saw a lot about that on Twitter. Because lung cancer can remain silent and get relatively large without causing symptoms, most patients present with metastatic disease. And that's true when you look at those charts every year. Over half of lung cancer patients present with metastatic disease, starkly different from the other types of cancers that we typically think about screening for. Those cancers like breast, prostate, colon cancer, only about 6 to 22% of those patients present with metastatic disease. And why diagnose earlier? Well, we know that with early stage disease, there's a chance for cure. We've got incredible drugs in the stage four space, and we're doing better and better with those patients. But we know that we can cure 80% or more of true stage one lung cancers and compare that to less than the 20%, 22% cure rate for five-year survivals for patients with metastatic lung cancer. And to me, the case for screening becomes obvious, both from an individual patient perspective, but also from a healthcare resources perspective. We know that screening finds lung cancers at an earlier stage. And we have pretty strong data here. We've got multiple trials. Let's talk about some of that data. The National Lung Screening Trial, the NLST, was a randomized study that explored low-dose CT scan as a tool for the early detection of lung cancer. For those not familiar, Hillary, could you briefly summarize that study? Sure. So the National Lung Screening Trial was truly a landmark study. Prior to the NLST, the research community had really been trying quite hard to find an effective screening modality for lung cancer for the precise reasons that Brendan just outlined. It was an obvious case where we could make a difference by screening. And these studies had often explored the idea of using chest x-ray, but the problem was that none of these attempts actually showed a benefit in terms of reducing lung cancer mortality. So along came the National Lung Screening Trial. This was a large randomized controlled trial with 53,000 participants in the U.S. across 33 different centers, and it took place during 2002 through 2009. So to be eligible for the NLST, participants had to have formerly smoked or currently smoked and be in the age range of 55 to 74. And that smoking history had to be at least 30 pack years with no more than 15 years since quitting for the people who had quit. The participants were randomized to one of two arms. In the first arm, there were three annual low-dose CT screens. And in the other arm, there were three annual chest X-ray screens. And the NLST has been sort of widely criticized for having this design where there was no true control arm with no intervention. We were comparing low-dose CT to chest X-ray. But historically, the reason for this was that at the time of the NLST design, the PLCO study was still ongoing. And the PLCO study was evaluating the effect of chest X-ray screening compared to no screening. So the idea was for the result of the NLST to be a value regardless of the result of the PLCO trial. So at the end, the NLST showed a 20% reduction in lung cancer mortality with low-dose CT screening as compared to chest X-ray screening, which was, again, a landmark result. It was really quite remarkable. And another remarkable result was that there was also a statistically significant 7% reduction in overall mortality shown with LDCT screening. And it's extremely difficult to find overall mortality reduction in in cancer screening trials in general. So this really revolutionized the landscape of early detection for lung cancer. Those are really, really impressive numbers. They're really striking um, for those in the field. And I think what's, what's even more striking is it's not the only trial that's demonstrated clear benefit 
Now, Brendan, we have Nelson. That was a Dutch-Belgian lung cancer screening trial. Could you compare NLST with Nelson with regard to, to both design and results? Yeah, Nelson's an amazing trial. It really validated a lot of what we found in NLST. It was set up differently. Um, importantly, it was presented at one of the ISLC meetings, but Nelson generated a very similar result to the NLST. It did have some important differences. This was over 15,000 patients. It was a CT screening versus a no screening trial. So like Hillary just said, the other arm had chest x-ray in the NLST. This was a no screening trial. I always kind of laugh at that distinction because it's hard for me to imagine who doesn't get a chest x-ray in this day and age. And so I think that that's a valid comparison, but this one for those who are being formal was set up with a no screening at all. And instead of the yearly patients underwent screening at baseline, year one, year three, and year 5.5, so five and a half years. And so that basically, they spread out the screening a little bit. Importantly, just like NLST, though, it was a stop screening trial. They weren't screening continuously for every year. So we think that all the effects of these trials will actually be underestimated. Nelson included younger patients, 25% were less than 55 years old. But again, results were quite similar. About 2.1% of tests were positive. There's some nuances about how they define a positive test. It was higher in the NLST, which was 24%. And the nuances are really based on volume and volume changes rather than just an absolute one-dimensional size. Almost 1% of patients had lung cancer in Nelson, 0.9%. And they saw a similar reduction in lung cancer deaths, 24% in the entire population, sort of validating that 20% number that we saw in the NLST. Some of the most important aspects, again, that I had mentioned before, 59% of screen-detected cancers were stage one compared to just 14% in the control group and in a similar group of patients who were just database study over the same time in the same locations. And that really is that stage shift that we were talking about, converting patients to earlier stage disease. Importantly, Nelson was mostly done in men, but there was a nice signal that generated a lot of discussion that there was an even greater reduction seen in women. The hazard ratio was 0.67 um, at the end of the screening period, so a large reduction at different times periods, it was even greater than that, suggesting that women may be even more likely to benefit from screening. And then the other part that I'm sure we'll talk about later is this concept of overdiagnosis. And because this was a, a volumetric trial, instead of just calling any nodule positive, they really looked at volume changes and that decreased the overdiagnosis rate to less than 10%. And so some important points, but really validating this idea that, hey, lung cancer screening has a lung cancer mortality benefit and can be done safely and effectively in this patient population that's at risk. I mean, we're you know, evidence-based, and you know, we have here two randomized trials. This is the highest level of evidence in medicine, and both show a significant decrease in lung cancer deaths in high-risk populations. We see an LST, an impact on all-cause mortality. We see a stage shift to earlier stages, more treatable stages, an impact in men and women. To me, these are clearly practice-changing studies. Can you comment a little on how they've been received in the U.S. and you know uptake of lung cancer screening in general, Brendan? That's a tough question, one that we're all sort of wrestling with. I think that we'll talk about it later when we discuss barriers to screening, and certainly there are many. I always like to point out that lung cancer screening came of age at a time when there was a general skepticism that was being raised about the benefits of screening in general. Certainly, that was true of lung cancer. And people don't know how to quite convert this idea of this benefit of 20% or 24% mortality benefit to what it means for the individual patient. I agree it's important to acknowledge that this is a, a relative reduction, not an absolute reduction. And so thinking about that becomes important. I think regarding Nelson, people still, even on Lung Rights Committee, we talk about all the time volumetrics and should we be looking at these by volume or by absolute size? That creates some different confusion between the two trials and how to compare the two trials. But I, I think it ultimately gets to barriers about screening, but also notable in that recent um, ACS report was still only about 5%, maybe up to 10% in some places of eligible patients are getting screened for lung cancer. So we still have a lot of work to do to convince the public. 
that number is so low. It just doesn't sound like it's real. Hillary, outside the U.S., uh, have the data been similarly received? There was quite a bit of enthusiasm for lung cancer screening after the NLST result outside of the U.S., Although many official bodies and governments outside of the U.S., particularly in Europe, stated that they would wait for the Nelson result before moving forward with any kind of national recommendations, national screening programs, etc. Since the Nelson result was initially announced in 2018 and finally published in 2020, there has been really an acceleration of lung cancer screening in many different countries, although much of it is still taking place in a research context. For example, in the UK, there is now somewhat of a national rollout. It's a rollout taking place within the England National Health Service. And there are quite some innovative aspects of what has happened in the UK with lung cancer screening. The earlier pilot and implementation studies used risk-based eligibility based on risk prediction models, and also used mobile scanning units to really reach populations that are not always easy to engage in screening. And they had quite a bit of success with this. Screening is also taking place in different capacities in countries like Italy, China, Brazil, Canada, Japan, South Korea, and the list goes on. But there's really a lot of variation in how that's taking place. Increasingly, what's quite interesting is that some middle-income countries, particularly upper middle-income countries, are increasingly piloting screening. For example, at IARC, we have a partnership with Belarus, and they're doing their best to implement a lung screening pilot in the context of covid But when you take a step back, I don't think that any country really has a full organized lung cancer screening program in place that has high coverage and high uptake for all eligible people, which at the end of the day is what's really needed to impact lung cancer mortality at the population level. So there's really quite a long way to go still. And I appreciate that there's there's going to be a little bit of a lag to catch up with the data. I remember being at a BTOG meeting, at a BTOG meeting in, in the UK. And they had gone over these data, very impressive data, and said, if everyone eligible was to get screening, they don't have anywhere near enough CT scans, sort of a, a matter of number of scans per eligible person. And so we have to think of, of resources, but assuming that resources are available and there are machines and there are available to eligible people, what are the concerns that referring physicians you know, or patients have about lung cancer screening? I guess, in other words, what are the downsides to lung cancer screening? This is an important question because every screening intervention, in particular cancer screening intervention, has potential benefits and potential harms. There's no exceptions. And so we have to be careful to pay attention to both. Lung cancer screening has been fairly controversial. And I think in part, this is because of misunderstandings about the harms and the frequency of harms. And also the fact that since the NLST result was published, Things have changed quite quickly and a lot has improved, but it's very difficult to communicate those improvements to the general public. So I think if we try to summarize the downsides, probably the main one is that benign nodules are frequently identified, especially in these populations that are at high risk for lung cancer. There are sometimes nodules sitting in the lungs that are cancers, but there are very, very often nodules sitting in the lungs that are not cancer maybe in 25% of participants, for example. And these nodules have to be managed very carefully to rule out lung cancer without causing harm. And these harms might include physical harm from invasive procedures, as well as psychological harm from causing worry, telling people that they might have cancer when they ultimately don't. 
However, the protocols to manage these nodules have really improved over time. And I think Brendan alluded to earlier the fact that in Nelson, they used a category of results that was indeterminate results. So there were negative results, positive results, and indeterminate ones. And these were nodules that they just needed to follow up with another scan in three or six months to see whether they were negative or positive. And I think this was a conceptual improvement because it you can tell a patient you have a nodule. These are very common and they're usually not cancer. So we're just going to check it again in a few months. And this is quite a different message than telling someone that they have a positive result. The other thing I'll mention is the radiation exposure. So cumulative radiation exposure is a potential concern because we are now talking about screening people every year from age 50. And that adds up over time, but the radiation from a single low-dose CT is quite small. It's usually less than half of the background radiation that you're exposed to over one year. So I think that you know it's worth explicitly pointing out, Hillary, you brought up some great points. Lung cancer screening is not just getting a CT scan, it's getting a low-dose CT scan. It really it, you know, it requires an experienced team to interpret that. And there are probably regional differences. If you live in an area that's endemic to histoplasmosis, that's endemic to TB, you really need an experienced team. It's more than just the scan itself, right? Yes, exactly. So Brendan, in your experience, any other concerns that have been raised that you've encountered? I would love to talk about this and Hillary did a great job laying it out, but there's a couple key points. I think one is that there is hesitancy about the effectiveness. And I think that's really a misunderstanding of the results and how these trials were structured. David Jankelovich, others have written some great articles just about how to think about this. After the Analyst was published, the American College of Chest Physicians and ASCO actually wrote a paper about evidence regarding the benefit based on the NLST. And, you know, it's interesting. They said, you know, what should physician members tell a person interested in screening? And that somehow came out to the message that four out of five people who are going to die of lung cancer would die even if they were screened, that screening would prevent one in five deaths from lung cancer. That, I think, though, is a general misunderstanding of any stop screening trial. The NLST, remember, had an annual screen, year one, year two, so just two years of screening and then reported results out to six years to 10 years. Obviously, any benefit of screening is really going to be realized with screening. A stop screening trial design won't lend itself to an absolute mortality reduction in the way that it's talked about in those types of papers. There's the the thought, and we know from lots of studies, that again, that number 70 to 80% of stage one lung cancers can be cured. And so if we think about it in that context and think about continuous screening, the mortality benefit, I would argue, is much greater. Similar to that, there's this this anxiety about overdiagnosis, which I think overdiagnosis has been overdiagnosed. And And this gets the idea that, look, a lung nodule itself is not a false positive. It's very normal to have a lung nodule on a CT scan. The question is, do people chase it? Are people doing invasive procedures harming people? If you look at the long-term follow-up from the NLST, where overdiagnosis was initially estimated 18.5% based on an excess number of cancers in the screening arm, that number got down to just less than 1% with the long-term follow-up. And so I think description of overdiagnosis was overplayed. And then I would also love to address the harms, and and Hillary did a great job talking about it. It's a passion of mine, but I think there's this idea out there that we're going to really hurt patients. And again, if you look at study guides published by the NCI, they say we can save three in a thousand patients with screening, but two in a thousand might have a major complication. 
there's pundits or talking heads that get out there and talk about this a lot. And they say that to avert over 12,000 lung cancer deaths annually, this has to be set against 27,000 major complications. And they say lung collapse, heart attack, stroke. Our group has actually done a lot looking at this, really trying to break down the NLST data. And we have an abstract on it at one of our national meetings, where it's important to distinguish that people who talk about this put harms in the context of all patients in the screening program. And so they also include those diagnosed with lung cancer who we know have finite rates of complications from treatment. If you look at the NLST data itself, and you look at rates of intermediate major complications, they're 12.1 and 10.4% respectively for lung cancer patients. But if you look at patients ultimately not diagnosed to have lung cancer, they're 0.16 and 0.04. So in other words, only four in 10,000 patients without lung cancer had a complication as a result of screening. And even those are just temporary. Typically, they need a chest tube. They get antibiotics for an infection. And so I think the lung cancer community really has to work hard to sort of argue back and push back about this idea of harms. And yes, we have to be responsible. And I think lung rads has allowed us to standardize follow-up, to standardize reporting, to standardize procedures. And so I think the harms are going to be markedly decreased moving forward. You know, the challenge is as we incorporate that more broadly outside of the context of a clinical trial, potentially with sicker patients, that we have to continue to focus on minimizing harms. Yeah, important points. We really need to make sure that there's a critical understanding of these data. Are there other barriers to lung cancer screening? Yeah, there's numerous. And I think it's a good way to think about them is there's provider level barriers, there's patient level barriers, and there's system level barriers. And I think if you think about the provider, I think we in the lung cancer screening community have arguably not done a good enough job about involving the primary care physicians, about sort of rewarding them, encouraging them, giving feedback to them when they do send a patient for screening, when we find a, a screen detected cancer. Those providers are overwhelmed with visits. They obviously have very little time. You know, the shared decision-making aspect of lung cancer screening potentially creates a burden on their time and a barrier without much that they get back from that. And I think some providers, there still is a stigma and a nihilism about lung cancer, stigma for patients who smoke and then the nihilism that we can do anything about it. Clearly, reports like those from the American Cancer Society and the progress we've made should be combating that nihilism. I think on the patient side, there's this sort of shame and there's fear and anxiety, the fact that they smoked, you know, it's one of the only cancers that you actually sort of get, get buttonholed for doing something that we consider to be bad behavior. And again, there's a lack of understanding of the data on the patient side. And then the system, we alluded to it, I think you know, the strongest independent predictor of longitudinal adherence to screening programs is centralization. That costs money. That needs funding for the program. It needs coordinators. It needs dedicated follow-up. It means getting patients back in for annual scans. And so screening really just, as you mentioned, shouldn't be a one-off. You don't just come in and get your CT scan and then go home. It's got to be a programmatic approach to really make it work and to do it safely. Yeah, great points, Hillary. Any other barriers you can think of to lung cancer screening? Sure. So maybe I'll focus on the context outside of the US. Brendan did a great job of reviewing, especially a lot of the individual barriers that exist to screening, that some of which are unique to the US, some of which are broadly applicable. It's hard to talk about individual barriers generally around the world because it's a very context-specific question. And for me, I think when we think about around the world, it really comes down to health systems because for most low-income countries, many lower middle-income countries, prioritizing lung cancer screening in the context of other priorities is really out of the question because we should never screen for something if we can't implement complete follow-up. And Stephen, I think you mentioned this earlier, right? It's not just the scan, but it's all the steps that come after that. And it doesn't help to find cancers if we don't actually successfully treat them. So we really have to think about in which health systems can we successfully implement this intervention. For high-income countries, upper-middle-income countries, 
Often these are countries with universal healthcare or analogous healthcare systems. And in that case, it has to be clearly demonstrated that lung cancer screening is cost-effective based on the standards of that particular setting. So it's important to note that many countries are often willing to pay less for a life year gained or to pay less for a quality gained than we are in the U.S. setting. So the considerations really become quite particular to the particular country. However, national programs or plans for national programs are increasingly emerging throughout Europe. You hear some focus from the European authorities on trying to implement lung cancer screening across the different European countries, as well as some Asian countries are implementing lung cancer screening more and more. But for example, I'm sitting here in France, and France doesn't have any organized lung cancer screening, despite the fact that more than a third of the population are current smokers here. So the smoking prevalence is extremely high. The impact of doing lung cancer screening is potentially very high, but for the moment, it's not a priority. And so there are different barriers related to what sort of context you're thinking about how the authorities in that context view lung cancer screening and how they have interpreted all of this data. I mean, I thought Brendan did a really good job of capturing the fact that when we think about overdiagnosis, for example, when we think about harms, it's very, very complex to understand these issues and they can't be reduced to sort of sound bites and tweets in a very easy way. So what this has led to is a lot of misunderstandings and miscommunication that have you know trickled across the world as well. I think it's important to think of things on a policy level because it really does make a big impact in how we can deliver. But I'd also like to talk just a little bit about some of the pragmatic things. Hillary, in NLST, the CT scans were performed for three consecutive years. I think Brendan alluded to sort of the stop screening approach. What happens after those three years? Right. So in the NLST, the screening stopped after three years, and then there was an additional five or six years that the participants were followed before the calculation was actually done, before they compared the rates of lung cancer development and lung cancer deaths. But in real life, of course, that's not the goal. In real life, screening continues at a regular interval. And currently, most of the recommendations are for annual screening until some point at which the potential benefits no longer outweigh the potential harms. And typically that reason would be related to age or comorbidities. So for the individual patient, the life expectancy isn't sufficient to justify screening anymore. But apart from that, we might screen, for example, from the age of 50 annually until the age of 80. And that allows us the opportunity to intercept the lung cancer, no matter when it develops. In the NLST, the opportunity to intercept the lung cancer was really only going on for for two years because there was a screen, a screen, and a screen spaced over over one year each. And with this continued long-term screening, Brendan's exactly right. The anticipated benefit is higher. So if we had continued screening, for example, in the NLST, then we might have seen a larger reduction in lung cancer mortality, for example, greater than 20%. Yeah, I mean, that's a big point. It's not like your risk goes away after three years. These aren't therapeutic scans. I think that's an important point. But you know, this is in a high-risk population. And let's talk about that. You know, both NLST and Nelson focused on patients that they defined as high-risk based on things like age and smoking history. Brandon, can you comment on how rigid we should be with those criteria? I would love to comment on that. And I just wanted to circle back quickly just to what you just mentioned. Yeah, the risk is cumulative of lung cancer, right? And so the incidence of finding lung cancer was 2% or 1% in LST and Nelson. It's been estimated that in those individual patients with those risk factors, their lifetime risk maybe exceed 10% of developing a lung cancer. And so 
we have to keep following those patients over time so we can capture those. I think regarding how rigid we should be with the criteria, I'm sometimes in the minority in this opinion, but I think we should be rigid. I think that's the clinical trial data. That's what should guide us. It's hard for me to argue that we should be expanding screening when we've already done such a poor job implementing the current screen that we have, you know, with less than 10% of eligible patients getting screened. That sort of you know, flies against, there's lots of lung cancer advocates out there who are incredible people, incredible, thoughtful, and knowledgeable who really want more broad screening. I mean, I understand that desire for that. But I think until we can show that we do it well in the population that's been approved for and studied well in, that we have to wait to turn our focus there. As we get to other sort of biomarker-driven risk factors of screening, we may get there. But right now, I think we should stick to the clinical trial data. And we know lung cancer is not just a disease of smokers, and a significant fraction of lung cancer occurs in people with light or no smoking history. Where do we stand with regard to screening possibilities in that population, Brendan? Well, that's a, a great question, and it's one that gets frequently asked. Another trial that was presented at World Lung was the TALENT trial. If you look at that trial, it was quite remarkable. Their goal was really to develop an effective strategy for screening of lung cancer in never smokers and to try to establish some risk prediction models. That was over 12,000 patients, similar ages, but again, never smokers. But they had to have some risk factors, a family history within third degrees of relations, passive smoking exposure, other lung disease, you know, some environmental exposure type things. But in that population, there was actually a higher incidence of lung cancer. I think it was about 2.6% of those 2.1% were diagnosed with invasive lung cancers. The majority, uh, overwhelming majority were stage one disease. I think that's kind of the first, first shot across the bow for screening and never smokers. I, I think potentially we'll get there in high risk patient populations. The other interesting part of that study was they showed a strong correlation with the number of relatives who had lung cancer. The incidence of lung cancer went up markedly. As we get more sophisticated with selecting patients, I think we'll get there. I just don't think we're there yet. And this will, we're continuing to learn about this, as you mentioned, sort of a different geography. I think that non-smoking related cancer is a different biology. And absolutely, each screening test is really informed by the biology of that cancer. So we're still kind of in the infancy here. I think as we learn more about the biology of these cancers, we'll be able to better integrate screening in these cancers. This field continues to grow, continues to evolve, definition of risk, our technology. You know, on a similar note, we hear a lot about GRAIL, we hear a lot about blood-based testing, other biomarkers that can maybe increase the impact of screening. Hillary, you do a lot of work here. What's the future of biomarkers and screening in lung cancer? I think there's substantial potential for biomarkers to optimize lung screening in different ways. Although I would emphasize that it's unlikely that we'll ever replace the low-dose CT scan, but we'll use biomarkers to inform how we use it. For example, we were just discussing lung cancer in people with a lighter smoking history, lung cancer, and never smokers. One big opportunity for biomarkers, like Brendan alluded to, is to identify people who are not eligible under standard criteria, but actually have high risk for lung cancer when we look at a biomarker and might benefit from screening. The other area for implementing biomarkers is clearly to refine nodule management and try to further reduce harms from identifying and following up benign nodules. There's a lot of different biomarkers that have been proposed in different domains. These are proteins, microRNAs, circulating tumor DNA, methylation markers. All of these are typically measured in blood. There's also some biomarkers that have been proposed for measurement in exhaled breath. But my personal opinion is that we need a very broad improvement in the design of the studies that are used to evaluate the utility of these markers. 
If you look at the literature, it's a little bit concerning that nearly every study looking at a lung cancer screening biomarker comes to the conclusion that that biomarker is definitely useful and should be implemented. And there's a lot of different ways that bias can be baked into these studies that at times be quite difficult to identify. And at other times it's quite obvious, but the core of it is that study designs in this area really need to seek to specifically identify whether a particular biomarker can improve the identification of people who will get lung cancer in a way that we can actually identify the improvement beyond existing tools and quantify it. Because without that information, it's very hard to say whether it would ever be worth implementing these things or not. The best case and before you move to a prospective design is to use pre-diagnostic samples that are from the intended use population. So for example, if you're trying to use a biomarker to improve the way that we implement screening in the current population, then you need to be comparing lung cancer cases in people who smoked to controls who smoked. You shouldn't be comparing lung cancer cases in people who smoked to controls in people who never smoked. It sounds obvious, but this is you know the different ways that bias can, can creep in. So because of this sort of failure to really use very rigorous study designs, despite the fact that many, many biomarkers have been proposed, it's really not clear at all at this point which of these should be implemented based on providing some clinical benefit as well as being cost-effective. Some important points here. Brendan, anything to add there? Yeah, it's fascinating. Hillary's obviously an expert in the space, but I, I totally agree with her that too many people design these biomarkers based on nodules or big cancers that are already detected and then try to say that they can apply that to the screening population. That's just not true. I think it's going to be hard to find a one-and-done biomarker for a tiny little nodule or for a patient in evolution that's tumor-based, right? A lot of these biomarkers, ctDNA, autoantibodies, even microRNA are sometimes based upon having a tumor there shedding these things. I like gene expression-based profiles or some other things coming down the pipe that might talk about the environment and whether the environment is perhaps conducive or whether that patient's at high risk. I do think, though, that we'll increasingly get to a future that uses blood-based tests to better stratify for risk. And that may be, it won't replace CT exactly as Hillary says, but I think it might say, hey, you know, this patient could wait two years for their CT. They could wait three years. Hey, this is a patient who doesn't meet all the risk factors, but maybe because they have an increased biologic risk, they should be screened. And so it's certainly the future, how we sort of balance all these tests uh, one after another and how we select the best one is going to be challenging. But there's a lot of exciting work going on in the space, just like liquid biopsies for advanced disease. I think it's a good word, exciting. I think the space is changing. Encourage everyone to watch and also encourage all of our listeners to go back and, and read through the NLST and the Nelson data. Uh, I think they really are fascinating and, and speak a lot for themselves. Before we go here, I know we're up on time, but I'd love if we could just hear a little bit about sort of your own career paths. Hillary, you, you've got your PhD down the road from me in Baltimore. Now you're in France. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and, and sort of what led you to decide to focus your career on lung cancer? Sure. So as you mentioned at the beginning, I am working at the International Agency for Research on Cancer. This is the specialized cancer research agency of the World Health Organization, and we're located in Lyon, France. And I came here really because I wanted to work on international research with international teams, and it's just an incredible place for that. My expertise is originally in risk prediction and risk-tailored approaches to cancer screening, which sort of easily extends to this area of biomarkers. And prior to 2014, I had mostly worked on HPV-related cancers, including in the setting of HIV. But I began to feel that in that 
field, much of the puzzle had been solved. We understood the natural history of HPV, at least at specific cancer sites. A vaccine had been developed. And it was, you know, sort of around this time that the field of lung cancer screening was just starting to explode because the NLST result had been announced. And I saw that this was just a wide open field and there were so many challenges to be addressed, which is why I originally started working on lung cancer screening and have, it's become really a large chunk of what I do. Although I do continue to work on other cancer types, including HPV, because I think it's really useful actually to be able to draw analogies and see the differences across different types of cancer. But in lung cancer screening, we've made so much progress, but at the same time, there's a lot that remains to be addressed. So here I am, and I I think I'll continue working on lung cancer screening for the foreseeable future. Wow. It's so refreshing to hear that you sought out the challenge and and really rising to it. That's, That's wonderful. Brandon, maybe a word from you. You're an accomplished thoracic surgeon, but you're also active in the lab as a translational researcher. Can you talk about that balance between the OR and the lab? And, you know, again, why did you decide to dedicate your career to lung cancer? I will, but first I'll put in a plug for Hillary. She's an incredible researcher and we supported her 2020 through the Lung Cancer Research Foundation. She got her Distinguished Researcher Award just for some of the work she's doing. It really resonates with the field and with the space and with lung cancer screening. I just want to thank her for all the work that she's doing. You know, I try to carve out a little bit here and there where I can. I think trying to do everything probably sometimes means you don't do anything well. And I sometimes worry about that. I think I'm just interested like you. I mean, we've sat on a couple of DOD panels together and I've always just been so impressed with your insight into the translational aspects of cancer. I think sort of thinking about that stuff is refreshing. I think it affects how I think about patients clinically too. It's a tough balance and it's ever tougher to get funding. I think that means that people like me basically have to work with really smart scientists, have to find great partnerships. That's probably anything we do in thoracic oncology, right? Is is great partnerships are the key to success. And and then, you know, just finding the right niche and, and being a little lucky. We try to make it work and, and do what we can. It's just such an exciting time for the field that I think, uh, you know, having people who touch all aspects from basic science to translational research to the clinic is only going to make things better for our patients. And both of you are very, very humble, but I want to thank both of you for all the work you're doing for the field. Tremendous progress in part due to the things that you guys are both doing. So thank you for that. And at the same time, thank you for joining us today. We're out of time here, but Hillary, appreciate you taking a few moments to speak with us about this. Thank you so much for inviting me. And Brendan, thanks so much for your kind comments. Yeah. And Brendan, thanks for your insights as well. And thanks for for taking time out of your busy day. Really a pleasure. I love the podcast and uh, keep doing such a great job with it. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 